everybody in this society has an interest in preserving their own reproductive liberty and autonomy. And that is true if you're a straight identified guy, if you're a gay identified guy, if you're a you know, cisgender guy, or if you're a transgender guy, um, or if you identify as female or, you know, non-binary or anything, right? We all actually have liberty interests. We all want uh, freedom in this intimate area of our lives, and we should act politically to preserve our interests. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Abortion was on the ballot in this week's midterm elections, and the results are in. Voters, even in conservative states, want abortion rights over abortion bans. This year's election featured the highest number of ballot initiatives ever held on abortion in a single U.S. election, following the Supreme Court's decision earlier this year to overturn Roe v. Wade. On Election Day, Vermont was the first state to enshrine abortion rights in its constitution, with 72% of Vermonters voting to approve Article 22 to the Vermont Constitution. California and Michigan also approved state constitutional protections for abortion. Voters in Kentucky and Montana defeated anti-abortion ballot measures. And in August, voters in Kansas voted to reject a ballot measure that would have amended the state constitution to say it contains no right to an abortion. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we're going to talk about the state of abortion rights, and we're going to focus on the role of abortion allies. Later in the program, we'll hear from three men who share their abortion stories. Our guests today on this first half hour are Felicia Kornblue, who is Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont and Vice Chair of the Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund. We're also joined by Oren Jacobson. He is co-executive director and co-founder of Men for Choice. Uh, Felicia Cornblue, I want to start with you. Vermont made history on Election Day. Talk about what happened here. Well, it was an overwhelming victory. And I don't think I'm giving away any state secrets to say that even within Planned Parenthood of Vermont and the gender studies community, that was better than we expected. So I think what we learned from that and what we learned from the results elsewhere in the country, even in a pretty conservative state like Kentucky, is that people really don't want their intimate lives to be regulated by the government in this way. Um, we were talking here in Vermont about liberty and about freedom and about people's access to decide their own lives. It's a strong message because it's something which is profoundly important to people. And I think that I think that governmental actors who run afoul of that, you know, and who are tempted to mess around with people's intimate decision making in that way should really take a message here. They should really understand that people do not want their lives to be interfered with in that way. They want to be able to choose when and whether and under what circumstances to have children. And that means access to abortion. It means access to contraception. It means access to you know, vasectomy procedures, if people want that. It means access to a full range of reproductive health care, no matter who you are, if you're in a same-sex relationship, or if, no matter what your gender identification is. Like, we want that freedom. It's a bedrock freedom. And I think it's time that everybody in the political system recognized that and, and took it as the kind of high value that it really is. 
For people who aren't intimately familiar with Article 22, what were abortion rights in Vermont before Election Day um, this week, and what are they now? How did this change the landscape of abortion rights in Vermont? Well, what it changed was that this was a constitutional amendment, and it was difficult to achieve um, by design because it's hard to change a constitution. The constitution is our fundamental law in the state. It was hard to achieve, but that also means that it would be hard to undo, right? If, it, if something is just expressed in legislation, that's something, you know, the legislature uh, meets every January and they can make a law, they can reverse a law. But if something's in the constitution, it's a long process um, and it's it's supposed to be a high, bar a high hurdle to get over. Um, in order to change something. So now that reproductive liberty is enshrined in our state constitution, that means that no matter what the vagaries are of an individual administration or an individual legislature, that those rights will be secured and that'll be very difficult to knock them out of our, of our political system and take those rights away from people. So in terms of people's substantive experience, their day-to-day -day experience, that's not gonna change immediately, right? You had, you had freedom to make all those choices uh, last year, and you had them earlier this year, you know, to choose to contracept, to choose abortion, safe, legal, relatively affordable abortion care. Um, you had all those choices before you're gonna continue to have them. However, it means that going forward, those rights are gonna be enshrined in our state constitution, and there's a good chance that you're gonna be able to retain those rights, even if there's a big political change in our state. Now, there is an Achilles heel here. Uh, in Vermont, a, an, a, a new governor or a new legislature will have a very difficult time uh, if they were you know, banning abortion rights, let's say. However, the weak link is if there is a national ban, something that you know, Senator Mitch McConnell has said he would be open to doing. And if the you know, a future Congress decides to pass such a thing with the future president, um, Vermont would be vulnerable. And in fact, our constitutional amendment potentially does not protect us. Is that a fair description of it? Yeah, under our national system of government, we do have national supremacy. You know, so the US federal government, national government will trump the actions of a state government. Um, so, you know, something something catastrophic could happen coming from the United States Supreme Court um, or potentially from the national legislature. Um, right now, um, the Supreme Court doesn't seem like it is willing to go there, ready to go there. They might uh, at some later point. But I think that the, the silver lining is that with the kind of state results that we got in Vermont, this overwhelming victory of over 77%, as well as in Michigan and Kentucky and elsewhere, that um, and the way that abortion has shown up in, in legislative races around the country, I think we're sending a strong message to those legislators in Washington that people are not really gonna put up with that. You know, that this is an issue that people go to the polls around and people will turn out representatives who are gonna defy their rights in that way. So I think it um, Oren Jacobson, I want to turn to you and just, um, since it is the day after Election Day, just start by getting your thoughts on um, what happened on Election Day around America. And you are joining us from Chicago, I should point out. 
Yeah. So first of all, it's great to be with you all. And in many ways, yesterday, abortion was explicitly on the ballot in at least, what, five states, I think Vermont, Michigan, California, Kentucky, Montana, if my my states are right, and implicitly, in, abortion was on the ballot everywhere, in every race. And I think one of the overwhelming uh, results from last night is that abortion won. Uh, to Felicia's point, there is not a debate about whether or not this is a pro-choice country. Uh, the voters were loud and clear, even in places like Kentucky, which is a deep red state, uh, the voters there seem to have rejected an effort to pass a constitutional ban on abortion. In Illinois, where I am, uh, we picked up and expanded the pro-choice majority. We won two swing seats on the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, which were critical to ensure that we didn't have a state-level Dobbs decision. Uh, we could have lost those two seats and woken up this morning with anti uh, anti-abortion Supreme Court in Illinois, and that has been avoided, which means that in the center of this country, abortion rights will be accessible, not just for the people of Illinois, but the people around Illinois that are so dependent on what's going on. So I think in a lot of ways, to, to Felicia's point, a loud and clear message was sent by the voters of this country uh, in a broad cross-section demographically in terms of political ideology that people want the freedom to control their own bodies and their reproductive decisions. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is in most situations, uh, access to abortion or the restoration of rights to abortion in places where it's been taken away will not be fixed uh, quickly or because of the results. And so uh, for folks like Felicia and myself who are uh, advocates, allies in this space, there is a lot of work ahead, uh, but I also come away optimistic that um, at some point in time in the future, we're going to restore those rights, expand those rights, and, and provide access to abortion because, as Felicia said, the voters of this country are overwhelmingly supportive of the idea that people should have the right to make this decision and overwhelmingly reject what is a radical minoritarian position that is being pushed by one of our two major political parties seeking to ban and criminalize abortion. Orrin, I want to pick up on, um, you mentioned Kentucky, and I have been fascinated to look at what happened in Kentucky. And uh, I might say happening because the vote isn't completely counted. But here is a state where um, yesterday Senator Rand Paul won with 61% of the vote. This is what Rand Paul's website says about his uh, stance on abortion. It says, quote, I am 100% pro-life. I have stated many times that I will always support legislation that would end abortion or lead us in the direction of ending abortion. We may be able to save millions of lives in the near future by allowing states to pass their own anti-abortion laws. If states were able to do so, I sincerely believe many, including Kentucky, would do so, saving hundreds of thousands of lives." Close quote. Well, Kentuckians were allowed to vote on abortion rights. And as of this moment, 53% of Kentucky voters uh, have voted to protect abortion rights um, in a, a ballot measure. It was a constitutional amendment which stated that, uh, would have stated that there is no right to abortion or any requirement to fund abortion in the state of Kentucky. 
that was defeated. This is a little hard to follow because it's a double negative. You're saying no to something, um, you know, that would bar the state. Uh, so, and I also want to just a little further on who Kentucky is. Three quarters of adults identify as Christian. Nearly half are evangelical, 10% Catholic, both denominations that condemn abortion. So, Oren, reflect on that a little bit. Um, you know, uh, Rand Paul, this is a careful what you wish for moment for him. Um, he got his statewide vote on abortion rights, and it did not look like what he said it would. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in some ways not surprising at all if you've been like paying attention to the polling data over a long period of time in this country and like where people fall on this, because even for self-defined Republican voters, most of them don't want uh, an abortion ban or a ban on criminalization. Um, my math is a little bit funky on it, but I think it's something like four, four in 10 Republicans say that abortion uh, should be legal. Um, and so from that perspective, it's not shocking. It's not shocking at all. You know, I think when we think about a state like Kentucky or a state like Kansas earlier uh, this year or a state like Montana, who's also in a similar position uh, to Kentucky on this one, we imagine um, this hard partisan framework. And what what is sort of taking shape, I think, in the media environment, and I'm not here to bash bash anybody in the media, but in the media environment is that we've treated this issue like it's a 50-50 split in America, when in fact, it's like an 80-20 split in America. 80% of Americans think that abortion should be legal in at least some cases, and at least 60% of Americans think that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. So when you give people a chance to actually vote explicitly on that single issue versus having to vote for candidates who hold bunch a bunch of issues and a strong partisan identification, I think overwhelmingly, if you put this up for a national referendum, you would have a 60-40, 65-35 split in favor of enshrining the right to an abortion in this country because for literally the last 50 years since the Roe decision has, uh, since the Roe decision first came down, the polling on abortion has been functionally static. What has changed is that a small minority of Americans have gotten control of the political apparatus of the Republican Party and made it so that no Republicans who were running for office could run on anything other than a complete uh, anti-choice uh, framework, even though most Republicans don't support the policy prescriptions that the anti-abortion movement is pushing. Oren, tell us, us a little bit about your organization, Men for Choice. Yeah, so Men for Choice was started in 2015 out of, in Illinois, where I live, with a, a, to, to try to tackle a very simple question, which was, how can we get pro-choice men off the sidelines and in this fight? Again, if you look at the polling data, roughly six in 10 men believe that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. And yet, uh, you know, Felicia will, will agree with this from her experience. If you go to the average Planned Parenthood event, you don't see uh, a gender, uh, like a, a gender balanced crowd. Most of the time, it's 80, 20, 90, 10 women in the room, people who can get pregnant in the room. And most of the guys who are showing up, if you ask them why they're showing up, they'd be like, well, of course I'm pro-choice, but I'm supporting my partner and my wife. And so we looked at that and we recognized what was happening across this country at the state level in particular, where men with power on the Republican side were loud and bold 
in pursuing an all-out effort to overturn Roe with the goal of banning and criminalizing abortion. Meanwhile, the majority of men in America are pro-choice, and most of us have been silent and passive. And so we started asking questions about why that was and decided to, to try and figure out how to change that and if we could change that. We started in 2015 in Illinois. We've expanded outside, now doing work in Florida and Georgia, as well as sort of in a distributed way nationally. And all of our focus is on engaging passively pro-choice men with an emphasis on training men how to engage their peers. We think that the message really matters. Felicia talked about freedom and power and control. No person can be free if they don't have the power to control their own body. And we believe that the messenger matters as well. And that unfortunately, if we're being honest, men haven't been listening to women for decades. Part of that uh, is a socialization of men and a sort of a, and a misogynist, misogynistic or patriarchal framework. Um, and in order to fix that, we need other men talking to men. So what we focus on is how do we train a new generation in particular of men to engage their friends? So as an example, we run a 10-week youth fellowship organizing training uh, two to three times a year, twice in election years, three times in off years. And we literally bring in groups of young men, 18 to 25, and we train them on the issues. We teach them how to organize. And then they host educational events with their friends all with the long-term goal of shifting the way those guys think, speak, and act on this issue, that they become more vocal and active supporters. And then at the end of that process, we move towards mobilization. So what that means in the context of an election cycle is that we host GOTV events where we just recruit men to show up with our partner organizations like Planned Parenthood action in Florida or in Georgia, as an example, this cycle, where we hosted phone banks where we had 40 guys on a Sunday afternoon calling voters to turn out pro-choice voters in elections. And if you think about that, practically speaking, those guys have never before engaged in any formal way to support local pro-choice candidates. So when you add 40 more guys on a Sunday into the volunteer pool, you're literally expanding the power of the movement for reproductive freedom to engage more voters and turn more voters out because more voters will be aware of what's at stake and about the issues and who to support. And in the long term, in the long term, we're going to shift the culture uh, because what we need to do is shift the culture around men in particular, because for decades, not only have we not been listening to women and individuals who can get pregnant whose rights have been under attack, but we've been tolerating, tolerating and normalizing the idea that these other guys could use their power to control people's bodies because we have said nothing to them and we've just acted as if that is socially okay. And that's a tolerable use of power and privilege in the society. Hmm. Felicia, I'm interested to get your reflection on the role of allies and, and some of the things that Oren is saying and in your own experience in bringing allies and men into the conversation and the activism around abortion rights. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to learn more about um, Oren's organization. And I think it's it's really powerful, it's moving to me. And um, I would say, you know, in part, this is a story about allies, but it's also a story about people identifying their own interests, right? I think that everybody in this society has an interest in preserving their own reproductive liberty and autonomy. And that 
is true if you're a straight identified guy, if you're a gay identified guy, if you're a you know a cisgender guy, or if you're a transgender guy, um, or if you identify as female or you know non-binary or anything, right? We all actually have liberty interests. We all want uh, freedom in this intimate area of our lives, and we should act politically to preserve our interests. You know, it's always been true in the in the reproductive rights movement, even in the in the Margaret Sanger days of the birth control movement, uh, that most people, almost everybody, makes these decisions in a family context. You know, they, if they're making intimate decisions, they're making intimate decisions with their intimate partners. And if they're not doing that, it's because there's something wrong. It's because there's an experience of violence or, you know, a profound alienation or something like that. Um, so we have to preserve the ability of the person who is pregnant or who can get pregnant to make choices for themselves, you know, for those cases where there's something wrong and they need to make the decision all by themselves, right? So, so we preserve that ability. We stand for their rights as individuals. But at the same time, we recognize that people really aren't making this, these decisions by themselves and, you know, that families and partnerships and communities um, really have an interest in making sure that there is a bedrock constitutionally protected freedom in this area. You know, who are you going to have sex with? Who are you going to have children with? When are you going to have children? Do you have enough money to, you know, to sustain your family life? Like, these are questions that that families have to consider, that intimate partnerships have to consider. And everybody who's in a family or is in an intimate partnership has a stake, yeah. right? We, we don't recognize that. I think we're really missing the story. Felicia, I'm so, so glad you said this because more and more of our work has been shifting away from, or I shouldn't say away from the allyship framework. I mean, obviously that's a piece of this puzzle and most guys are gonna step into this space under the idea that I need to stand up for someone else. But when we are with them, we move beyond the question of them as an ally to them as a stakeholder. This is really the critical piece of it, as Felicia said, which is that my body may not be under attack, but if the government can control my wife's body, the government can control our family. And the most consequential, important decision that we could ever make uh, as a family and in the context of healthy relationships, as Felicia said, the decision to have children is a decision people make together or not to have children or how many children to have. And while I should have no more than 49% of the vote in this uh in this democracy and in my home on this question, we make that decision together. And what men in Texas, as an example, are waking up to right now, they're gonna, their partner, their wife probably doesn't have a regular cycle like many women in America. And they wake up on week seven of their pregnancy, which by the way, guys, is really three weeks after your wife's supposed to have her period. Um, and they find out that their wife is pregnant. And now for that guy and that that couple, Greg, uh, Greg Abbott has the power to control their family or their family has to drive, go through incredible hoops, incredible burdens and face legal exposure to decide to terminate an unexpected pregnancy. Um, and in the worst case scenario, we've seen this story as well um, in Texas, people are gonna wake up to the reality that because of the laws in their states, their wives, their partners, lives are literally at risk because doctors are refusing to perform what are ultimately medically necessary procedures. 
that are threatening the, the life of the pregnant person, of the mother, of their wife. Um, and they're going to wake up to that reality. So I think what Felicia is saying is so critical for the men listening here. Yes, step up as an ally because uh, people people's rights are under attack. But your freedom is at stake here too. Our collective freedom to build and plan our families the way that we want to is at stake. And until more of us as men come to see ourselves as stakeholders in this fight with something to lose, uh, too many of us will stand on the sidelines. And if more of us get to that place, uh, the massive and incredibly impressive and resilient uh, organizing that women and pregnant people in this country have been doing and just did in particular to say hell no at the ballot box will, will uh, become stronger, more vibrant, and eventually win because math is math. And there are just more of us than there are of them. And it's not even close as long as we are committed to standing up. And I think part of the key of that, to Felicia's point, is recognizing that we're stakeholders. Not that we should be centered, but that we are stakeholders. We're about to listen to abortion stories from male partners um, talking about their own experience, the difference that abortion has made in their own lives. Oren, I wonder if you could, you have not heard these stories, but um, just kind of uh, lead us into what is the importance of men uh, and partners sharing their stories? Yeah, so, so much about this is around normalizing abortion, right? Abortion has been so stigmatized in our society. And if you stigmatize a procedure, then you stigmatize the people who get the procedure. And not only do they feel shame, uh, but it ends up leading to a situation where, again, we tolerate abortion bans and criminalizations and these types of rollbacks of, of rights. Um, so I think it's really important for men, especially in the context of making, you know, telling a story that your partner is comfortable with you telling or telling it in a way that honors the, the dignity uh, and the reality of your partner. Because if my wife had an abortion, it's not me physically having an abortion, even though that abortion means something in the context of our family. But the more of us that share our stories, and sometimes our stories are going to be an abortion story in which a partner needed an abortion for a reason and how that impacted our, our life. Some of that is just going to be us sharing stories about how uh, the ability to plan our family is meaningful to us. The mere act of men speaking up and lending their voices will normalize the idea that this is to shift the culture and bring the majority of men who are pro-choice more actively into this fight. So I think it's really important that guys do share their story and do raise their voices, whether their story is about uh, an abortion experience in particular uh, or something around family planning or their belief that each of us should have the right to control our bodies and reproductive decisions. Let's turn now to taking a closer look at the role of men and abortion. An estimated one in five men in the United States have been involved in an abortion, meaning their partner's pregnancy ended in an abortion. One survey found that about half of these men already had children, and they supported ending the pregnancy to better provide for their existing family. I asked three Vermont men to share their abortion stories, and their thoughts on the significance of abortion in their lives and on the current debate over abortion rights today. Here is what they said. This is Carl Worth. I'm 63 years old. I live in Waterbury Center, Vermont. I'm semi-retired. 
but back when I was a college student in the late 70s, early 80s, probably right around 1980, I uh, had a girlfriend that we were pretty serious and um, didn't know where, you know, we were just college girlfriend and boyfriend, but uh, had, had no idea where our future was going, but she was on birth control, and as you know, even the pill is not 100% effective, and it wasn't in our case, and so even though we tried to take responsibility and not bring an unwanted child into the world, or any kind of child into the world, um, she got pregnant. I was away at college, and she was taking a semester off anyway at that point. So uh, it was pretty immediate that um, neither of us were ready to have a child. Although I certainly left the majority of the decision up to her because she would be the one who had to carry the child. There's a lot more involved, obviously, for the woman in the equation. And uh, I think there should be three votes, maybe, and the woman should get two out of the three votes of what happens. But she did not want to carry a baby, and neither of us wanted to be responsible for one. So she had an abortion, and everything went fine. Um, I think... If we had had to have the child, if it was a forced birth, as they say, I think it would have dramatically changed the path of both of our lives. And at this point, you know, um, 42 years on or so, um, we're both married to different people and have been for a long time. My wife and I have been married for 36 years. She's been married for over 30 years as well. And... Uh, we're just in different spaces, and we probably wouldn't have lasted together. And I was always kind of told by my parents, don't get married just because you get somebody pregnant, because, you know, you should get married because you want to build a partnership together, not because she's pregnant. And so I think that's a good thought because there's already so many unwanted children in this world. We don't need to bring any more in until we're taking care of the ones that are still in orphanages or in foster homes or, you know, we're not taking care of those kids. So until we're ready to be responsible enough to take care of each other, there's no reason to bring more children into the world that are not necessarily the best thing to happen you know, when someone gets pregnant. So I would say um, that's the biggest point for me is that, uh, you know, the, the path of my life would have been changed dramatically. I may not have moved to New York. I may have gone back to my hometown probably and had to at least be responsible enough to take care of the kid or to contribute to the child's upbringing, you know, um, what did you think when you heard that Roe v. Wade was reversed in June? I, my immediately, I thought of the band Devo and how we appear to be de-evolving as a society 
by taking rights away from people, um, especially you're turning half of the population into second-class citizens because you're taking away their body autonomy. Um, and I find it ironic that several of the people on the other side of the debate, when they were faced with COVID, a lot of men said, oh, I'm not going to get a vaccine. I'm not going to wear a, a mask. You can't tell me what to do with my body. You know, um, my body, my choice. And I, I just go, uh, hello, have you ever heard of hypocrisy? Because uh, you're practicing it right now. And uh, it just, it's mind-boggling how people can com com compartmentalize things like that. Um, what role do you think that men should have in the decision about abortion? Uh, 100% they should be supporting what the woman wants to do because it's her body, period. I think, you know, you should talk with the person, let them know how you feel, and maybe you could change her mind. But in the end, it really should be between her and her doctor what takes place. In society right now, we don't hear much from men. You know, we see women protesting. We hear their stories. What do you think men should be saying or doing right now? Well, I think that anyone who has professed to my body, my choice, should be supporting women. But I think... Um, I think men are getting, uh, making a point. They're not protesting, but they're voting. They're, you know, our political system, despite minorities, uh, indigenous people, and women getting voted into office, still is a huge majority of white men. And they're making political decisions that affect women. So I think men are still being heard on this issue greatly. Uh, the other way that they're heard on this issue is they're all very pro-life, as they'll tell you. But I would argue, and I'm sure you would too, that they're pro-birth because the legislation they pass after a kid is born, they don't want to support the kid. They, the child tax credits and, and everything that you know would support life. If we really were a pro-life society, we'd be encouraging kids by making it easy to have them. No cost at the hospital, you know, free education. Oh, we don't have that either. You know what I mean? So there are so many things we could do that would tell me we are a pro-life society. But we appear from the laws that we pass to be, a, at least in terms of what's been going on since Roe v. Wade was taken down, it, it seems obvious that it's pro-birth, not pro-life. Uh, my name is David Bolger. I live in South Burlington, Vermont. Um, I'm a uh, first and second grade teacher in Williston. I love it. I've been doing that for, oh, close to 30 years. Um, and I have 
two beautiful children and wonderful spouse, Amy. These things in my life have made me who I am. I think that's what I want to say. Tell me uh, your story, your experience with abortion. My first um, experience with abortion was when I was um, 18 years old and uh, uh, I went off to college and met my first real girlfriend who ended up being um, my wife. We met the first day of college uh, and um, I was just so in love and enraptured um, with Amy and uh, we, you know, we, of course we use birth control um, and um, and we had, uh, we had two abortions in the, in our four years at, at Colby, Colby College. We had four, uh, we had two abortions. Uh, one was uh, within the first year of our, of our dating and being sexually active. What made you decide um, to have an abortion and to not continue the pregnancy? We both felt that we were so young and that we definitely were not in a place where we could uh, raise a family, where we could uh, support a family, um, take good care of a, of a um, you know, of a new baby and, and, and give, you know, and, and, and give a child a proper upbringing. No way, no way. Um, but nor did we feel that, oh, you don't have sex unless you're ready to do that. That is just crazy to me. That feels crazy to me. And I think that if, I think that most people feel that that's really crazy. You know, um, uh, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Would you have described yourself prior to going to college and becoming involved with Amy as being, having a, an opinion on abortion rights? Yes, um, I would. Um, now, um, before I went to college, because I went to college in 1977, and as we know, Roe v. Wade did not, um, you know, did not codify things until 1973. Uh, I, did, so I didn't have an opinion, you know, until 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, and Roe v. Wade was in the news, and my mom talked about it, and my dad talked about it, and um, as I said, they were Catholic, but my mom and dad were also progressive. They understood um, how hard women had had to fight to get everything from the vote to birth control, for God's sake, that wasn't even allowed. It, it, birth control wasn't even, wasn't even legal for women until I think Massachusetts was the last state in the country that allowed birth control to be given to women. And that was like 1972 or something crazy like that. We think that our, um, our lawmakers know what's best, but no, they, they don't know what's best. History is riddled with them not knowing what's best. And people have had to fight to get, to get you know, their individual rights. And um, you're now in your early 60s. Um, yeah. As you look back on your life and your life with Amy, how do you feel that abortion affected your life? 
I remember us both crying when we when we had the abortion. We felt it deeply. It it is something. One of the many things they both of them were were two of the many things that have um, welded us together in our life. It was sad and very real, and um, I, I don't feel regret about it at all. I, I told you that Amy was my was my first girlfriend, and we went out, you know, for four years through college, and we eventually split up, and went our separate ways, and then uh, and then came back together twenty years later, found each other again, and and that was when we were really so ready, um, and and able and capable to 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 uh, you know to to do a good job we were ready and we could do a good job together at raising a family and, and we have. And, uh, and we, Amy, Amy made the choice. It's, it's, Amy made the choice. I supported Amy and I feel, I'm really glad that I did that. And I feel proud that I did that. And I've, that that's always been my feeling about, um, about abortion. Um, it's the woman's right to choose. It was Amy's right to choose. Um, and we talked a long time about it, and uh, and I, I'm, I absolutely supported her uh, in that decision, uh, and and I'm glad. So and so I, I still had no regrets about that whole thing. When we started this conversation, uh, right before I turned on the mic, I asked uh, if you were comfortable um, identifying yourself, um, and you said, "Hell yeah." Uh, why, why did you, uh, why are you so emphatic about that? Uh, because I, I'm not ashamed of anything and people should not be ashamed, um, of anything. We should not be ashamed of di difficult things that we've gone through and difficult things that we've had to make choices about. It's what makes us become wiser in our lives and more useful to other people, more valuable to, to, as we as we get older, you know, we we get older and wiser. Um, no, like I said, I'm not ashamed about it. I'm not ashamed about it, and people should not be ashamed about it. I think the I think the there's a fact some that something like one third of women. I, I think this is true. One third of 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 women people in the United States, um, women in the United States, have of childbearing age have. Um, or will have an abortion. So it's just crazy that it's that that it's just crazy that there is a a drive to you know to restrict that um, when it's something that is that you know women all over childbearing age all over our country all over the world wrestle with this and men wrestle with it too. My God, of course, you know, I'm a man. So, so we wrestle with it too. And uh, it, it, it really feels right to me that it's, it's the woman's right in consultation. I mean, I want to be included, but Amy has the ultimate, you know, decision in that. She's the woman who is, who is carrying that pregnancy or choosing to terminate it. My name is John Williams and I live in Waterbury Center. Uh, I've been here since 1983. Uh, in 1984, my wife, Dee Dee, and I had our first child. 
And um, we were of a mind back then that we definitely wanted to have a, a second child, and we felt that a uh, a good age difference between the two was about three years. We really felt that the first child needed some time to mature and get confident in the family uh, before we introduced a second child. Um, as it happened, uh, my wife got pregnant I think within a year or maybe a year and a half after our first child was born. And of course, or not surprisingly, we were um, feeling somewhat overwhelmed with the, the duties of parenting a, a young child at that point. And we, we, we knew that we weren't ready to take on a second child at this point. Um, we had a pretty pretty intense conversations, several conversations about it, uh, but we were both pretty clear that um, we wanted this pregnancy to end as, as soon as we could possibly do that. Um, I think I was in a position where I was ready to go either way with it, but the main thing for me was to be as supportive as I possibly could. Uh, to my wife, and we ended up going to the to Planned Parenthood in Burlington. I don't remember exactly how far along she was in the pregnancy, but um, everything went smoothly and straightforward. We were certainly traumatized and sad for a little while, but ultimately, um, we. We felt it was uh, the right thing to do for us. What would it have meant to have a child at a time that you felt you weren't ready? I think one way or another we would have we would have dealt with it, but um, given that we had the choice to have another child or not at that point. We chose, um, we chose not to. We wanted to wait a little longer, and we did. And our ch second child was born almost exactly three years after the first one, and um, that's worked out. But to answer your question, I guess uh, one way or another, we would have dealt with it. Um, but we didn't have to, and so we chose not to. You are, well, you can, how old are you now? I'm 71 now. As you look, reflect on your life, you have two wonderful daughters and grandkids. Um, how do you reflect on that choice that you made, you know, 40-odd years ago, um, in the scheme of the life that you've had since? I have no question that it was the right thing to do. And we were fortunate enough and blessed to have that choice. Um, I can't imagine not having, the ch not having had the choice. We're now 
in this moment where that choice is being taken away from people in half the states in our country. Uh, at last check, it's something like 26 states. Um, what, what do you want people to know from your experience? You know, the, the whole abortion debate has become so charged that the realities of what it means in a, a couple or a family's life to have had one are sort of lost. What do you want people to know about reproductive rights and what it's meant to you? Well, I think it's, it's absolutely nuts that, that Roe versus Wade has been, has been uh, taken, taken away and that right is being taken away from women. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, as I said, I think, I think had we not had the option available to us, we probably would have dealt with it one way or another, I think. But I think there are certainly a lot of situations, a lot of women uh, who are, and families who are in the position where a, an unplanned pregnancy could be absolutely devastating to the family. And um, yeah, it's just—it's it, just such a fundamental right. I can't understand why, why it's uh, why we're in the situation we're in now. Thanks to Carl Worth, David Bulger, and John Williams for sharing their abortion stories.